0: Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I'm asking the big question of how you prevent two F1 drivers from pulling a team apart because they're both chasing their own personal goals. And as F1 fans, should we embrace the Miami Grand Prix's diverse approach to F1's latest event? Welcome back to Pitlane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's that's a failure. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Pit Lane Life Lessons Podcast. Thanks as ever for joining wherever it is you are in the world. I appreciate every single one of you. Uh, And thank you for all the love that I've received over the past week. Uh, Anyone who sent me a message, know that I have read it and I appreciate it, and I would love that to continue. So if there's something that you find you resonate with in this podcast or that you just simply enjoy, or that just triggers something in you that makes you think a little bit differently about the challenge. Challenges you might be facing about getting you a tiny little bit closer towards those goals that you might have set yourself. If any of that stuff happens, then please do let me know either through any of the social media platforms. You can get me at F1 Elvis or, and I'd love this if you could leave the podcast itself, a little bit of love wherever it is you're listening to it by following or subscribing, or if you're in the Apple podcast store, leave me a five-star rating if that's what you think it's worth. And especially Take a moment out of your day, just a moment to leave me a glowing review in the Apple podcast store. It really does make a difference, both to me, but also to the podcast. So any of that Well, I'll be truly grateful if you could. That'd be amazing. Thank you. Um, So this week, a few topics to cover. Uh, I'm not quite sure how far we're going to get through them because it's been a busy week for me. It's been quite a busy week in the world of Formula One off the back of the Miami Grand Prix. Um, So we've got lots to talk about if we can get through it. But I want to start by talking about an event that I was at this week. I was speaking at an event on uh, Thursday in London for one of the leading estate agencies uh, in the country and this was an event talking about teamwork. It was a celebratory event where the company is actually doing very, very well but how do we do better? That's always the question. How do we get better? How do we make our teams more high performing? How do we get that little bit extra? And if everybody in our industry is competing at a very high level, how do we go that little tiny bit further than the competition? How do we maximize what we have? How do we get all of our brilliant people who might be great individuals working well together as a team? And these are the topics that I always talk about. And this particular company that I was I was speaking for this week are already doing a very good job of that. So at the end of most of my sessions, when I do these things, I open up to the floor for questions. And quite often I get some really good ones, but there are quite a few questions that come up repeatedly. That's not unusual, of course, because quite often I'm talking about similar subjects. So it prompts a similar line of questioning. But one that comes up repeatedly and that I often find a tricky one to answer is the question of how do we get Formula One drivers in the same team to work as a team when they are often also each other's biggest rival? They could well be the one thing between them and the biggest prize in that sport, the World Championship. So how do you prevent the individual from serving themselves at the expense of or even to the detriment of others around them in that same team? It's a really interesting question on many levels, both in terms of Formula 1 but also if we expand it out into the wider world and I'll do that in more more depth in a moment. But from a Formula 1 perspective It's a really difficult one to answer. And in fact, I'm not sure there is an answer for it. I think the answer to that question is that you will never actually prevent a Formula One driver from looking after themselves, potentially at the expense of their teammate on the other side of the garage, because of the very nature of this sport, where they are competing in essentially two championships, the team's championship, the constructors championship, but also the driver's championship. They only really care about the Drivers' Championship. For them, in their world, that's the one that matters. That's the record that will count for something for them. It's the one that they want to win to enhance their career, to enhance their own value within that short career time that they have. And so they will go all out, and the very best drivers will do almost anything to achieve that goal. That's a very difficult scenario when you're part of the wider team and you don't have necessarily the same desire to have one of your drivers win a world championship over the other, when actually the team dynamic can be more important. And if we think about that in the wider context of businesses, of families, of friend groups, of bigger organisations, as a leader of those organisations or of those teams, those groups, The team performance, the team dynamic is probably your biggest concern. Having a great team culture, a team environment where people feel satisfied, fulfilled, happy, willing to work towards this cause that the team has set out to try and achieve, willing to go above and beyond at times when necessary for that cause. That's the kind of environment you're desperately trying to create as a team leader. And in terms of a family setting on a much smaller scale, it's pretty much the same thing. That's exactly what we're after, isn't it? We want the family dynamic to be right. And within that, of course, we all want to look after all of the individuals. The difference in a Formula One team is that unlike in a family setting, there is real competition with real big prizes that mean an awful lot to the lives and the careers of these Formula One drivers. So managing that is a real challenge. So when that question comes to me, how on earth do you stop these Formula One drivers from pulling the team apart in pursuit of their personal goals and achievements? And it's a very, very difficult one. And as I said before, I'm not sure you will ever get that 100% right. The reason that question comes up in my talks, of course, is because in 2007, we at McLaren, and I was very much part of this, were central to probably the worst example of this happening in recent times where two drivers at times went out of their way to wrestle control of the team over towards them to wrestle support over to their side of the garage to do things almost clamber over the person on the other side to give them a step up that happened in 2007 on both sides of our garage Now, it happened for a whole host of reasons. McLaren, the reason I talk about this in my talks is McLaren did a very bad job of handling this back then. It was the first time for quite a number of years that we'd experienced such a dynamic between two drivers. We had Fernando Alonso, of course, the current world champion. We had Lewis Hamilton, who was the rookie. And we did a very bad job of man management when it came to both the drivers, but also the teams of people around those drivers who naturally, of course, gravitated towards their drivers and essentially pulled this great big divide apart down the centre of our team. Now, as a team, if you've got a giant split down the middle of it, you're clearly not gonna be getting the best out of those people. You're not as strong as a team as you would be If there was no split, if you're all working and pulling in the same direction, if you could share information, share knowledge, share learnings, share experiences that might help everybody, not just one person in that team. That's a poor team dynamic when it comes to that kind of scenario unfolding. And that's exactly what we experienced. And I would go as far as to say the very reason we failed to win the world championship in 2007. In a season where we had the car, we had the drivers, we had all of the right people in the team, we had every opportunity to win that world championship and yet we didn't because as a team we weren't firing on all cylinders. We weren't pulling in the same direction. We had this giant gaping split down the middle of our team pulling the both sides off in different directions. So whilst we did a pretty terrible job that year of handling that situation. And it cost us major results. It cost us the biggest prize in the sport. Of course, as with any of those big failures in our lives, we also learned a huge amount. And the reason I'm able to talk about that today is because out of that failure, I learned a huge amount about how to handle situations like that better in the future. In Formula One terms, I learned that communication is absolutely key in this whole scenario how we communicate messages to our drivers and the wider team how we communicate our plans our strategies moving forward how we're going to approach things before they happen what expectations we have from everybody and what commitments we as a team are willing to go to to deliver upon those expectations The way we communicate those things can have a really big impact on the way that they're received by the drivers in your team and the team members around those drivers. And that, of course, can have a major impact on how they react to those communications. So, for example, back in 2007, we had Fernando Alonso, who had just won the world championship And his teammate was going to be Lewis Hamilton, who was a complete rookie, never raced in Formula One before. This young kid who, yes, of course, was promising. Yes, of course, he was going to be quick. Of course, he was potentially a star of the future. But Fernando Alonso was the star of right now. He had the big number one on his car, he was the world champion. Now, McLaren never had a number one and number two driver written into any contracts. But I have no doubt that in the communications with Fernando Alonso, there was a feeling, there was an expectation from all sides that Fernando would be the de facto number one. He would be the guy that would lead this team. We were expecting big things. And if we were in a position to win world championships, of course, it was going to be Fernando who'd be best placed to lead that charge. And in the meantime, of course, this young kid, Lewis Hamilton, would be there to back him up, to pick up the pieces, to learn the ropes to learn from the very best. I have no doubt that those kind of communications were what were going on between people like Ron Dennis and Fernando and Fernando's team. So whilst it was never said, I'm sure that Fernando, you will get preferential treatment. Fernando, you're our number one driver. I'm sure those things were never said and certainly never written down anywhere. I imagine they were inferred because that's what everybody imagined was going to happen. I imagined that myself. I've written a story in my book about how the mechanics and engineers inside McLaren were squabbling amongst themselves, fighting to get onto Fernando's car. People didn't want to be on Lewis Hamilton's car in that very first year because they didn't expect much from him. As mechanics and engineers, you want to win that world championship just as much as the drivers do. And so, of course, you had the best opportunity to do that by being on the current world champion's car. Or so we thought. And of course, with that expectation coming into a season from the team, from Fernando, from the people around Fernando, the mechanics and engineers, pretty much everybody in our factory had expectations, particularly once we realised we had a quick car, that Fernando was our guy to deliver the big results and take us on a season-long championship challenge where hopefully at the very end of it, we would tick that final box. We'd get the championship that we'd been craving for many, many years. Of course, as we got into the season, it very quickly became clear that Lewis Hamilton was just as quick, on occasion quicker, very early into that season lewis proved how good he was within a couple of races and obviously at that point lewis hamilton starts to think well hang on i don't want to sit behind fernando i'm as quick as him so why can't i have the same opportunities why haven't i got the same chance to win a grand prix that he has i'm quick i'm as quick sometimes i'm even quicker so, look, if I get up behind him in a race, there's nothing to stop me taking him on, to trying to get past, to take on that race win myself. He was an upcoming Formula One driver, desperate to prove himself. He wanted it as much, if not more, than Fernando did on a number of days that season. And so it was that the reality played out differently to the expectation. And because the way that that expectation had been communicated, even if not in any official capacity before the season had even started, it caused an upset. Very quickly, Fernando starts to realise that actually he has some major competition from within his own team, which he wasn't expecting, which he hadn't had before in his career in Formula One. His expectations were that the entire team would be behind Fernando, giving him every opportunity to take on the competition outside of the four walls of our McLaren garage. Not from the guy sat in the sister car just a few feet away inside our own garage. In the same way that those slightly vague, ambiguous communications pre-season around our expectations had given Fernando some false sense of security that he would have extra support, that he would be the team leader. Well, those same kind of communications had given Lewis Hamilton this chip on his shoulder that he was being less preferred, that he was getting less preferential treatment as the season began to unfold. And as he began to prove his own ability, he very quickly and understandably expected the same level of attention and focus that the team was Giving to the world champion, Fernando Alonso, because in Lewis's mind, he was just as quick. He was just as good at that stage in his mind and deserved more support. The problem with all of that is that you have two factions within your organization, within your team, fighting against each other, trying to wrestle control over to their side of the garage, trying to wrestle a little bit extra support, a little bit of preferential treatment. The upshot of that was that the team ended up having often private conversations with both sides on their own, trying to keep both sides happy, offering them, promising them things that perhaps they couldn't even deliver upon, trying to prevent this destructive team dynamic that was gradually creeping into our environment, yet inadvertently actually only accelerating that very process by. Offering each side things, promising things that they perhaps couldn't even deliver upon. By having those conversations behind closed doors with one party at a time, talking about the other driver rather than to the other driver, the problems got worse. Paranoia began to set in, not only between the two drivers, but also between their engineers, their mechanics, their teams of people around them. That conversations were happening that they weren't necessarily party to, and therefore they didn't know the content of. Were things being promised to the other side of the garage that they weren't getting access to? And if that was happening, well, listen, I'm going to hold on to a bit of information that I've got. I'm not going to share the same level of detailed feedback. The same level of knowledge that I have, there's no way I'm going to offer anything to those guys on the other side that could possibly help them. If I find something on my car that might give us a small advantage, I want to start keeping that absolutely to myself. And you can imagine how, when that escalates, it becomes a bigger and bigger nightmare for a team, particularly a Formula One team, to keep hold of. And that was where my biggest learnings through all of this came from. Communication, as I said, was crucial in all of this. Communication was at the very heart of it. Communication was probably what started the problems in the very beginning, because we weren't clear enough about it, and communications were what escalated it as the season went on. Bad, poor communications can be so destructive in any team environment. So what we should have done, and this is the advice that I often give to many companies in similar style situations, is that that communication has to be open. It has to be done on an open basis, It has to be clear, it has to be concise, it has to make sure that the upshot of that communication is that all parties involved, whether it's two halves of your own team, whether it's two teams in the same company, whether it's a brother and sister in a family environment at home. All parties involved need to know that there is no preferential treatment, that all parties have the same opportunities available to them. In Formula One terms, we had to make sure absolutely clearly that no driver could expect to get a new front wing ahead of another one, that they would not expect to get preferential treatment when it came to race strategy. We formulated solutions that left no room to be misinterpreted, So race strategy, for example, the guy who was leading had first call on when to make the first pit stop. It was unambiguous. There was no decision to be made each week. There was no preference to be given to one side or the other. It was just a fact. If you were leading, you had the first call and it works. And teams now use this up and down the pit lane as a standard way of doing things. But it all came down to communication we wouldn't introduce upgrades to the car until there was a point where there were two of them, where both drivers could have them at the same event. Quite often, you get one come through before the other, and therefore you have to choose which driver gets to test out your new component. That can offer the team an advantage because you get feedback and data and information on that component earlier, even if you've only got one ready because the other one has a long lead time by getting it out there onto the racetrack and using it. But on those very rare occasions when that happened, we found we had more value in creating a team environment where the team trusted each other, the drivers trusted the team, and everybody knew that there was equal opportunity on both sides of our own garage. When engineering problems came up, we encouraged those problems to be discussed in an open environment amongst both sides of the team, because, of course, more minds on that problem have a better chance of solving that and coming up with a solution. Naturally, it took time for these things to really start working, for the drivers to really start trusting these new processes and sharing information in the same way. But that's really the biggest lesson that comes out of all of this, because all of those problems really stemmed from some poor communication. And the lesson that I often try and impart from this, and I hope the lesson that you can take away from these stories, is that it's not just what we say and how we say it in terms of our communication, but often what we don't say. In McLaren's scenario, it was what we didn't say to Fernando and to Lewis right back in the beginning and to the people around those drivers. It's what we didn't say about our expectations of them and how we were going to approach the season that led on to the problems. And then, of course, when we had the problems, not being open, not being transparent about how we were going to deal with it created problems even further. And so communication has to be clear. It has to be open. It has to be concise. You've got to get across the message you want to get across. Sometimes that might be difficult. Yes, you risk sometimes upsetting people. You risk telling people something that they may not necessarily want to hear. But if it's the right thing, you have to say it. Because if you don't, it will lead to problems further down the line. In Formula One driver terms, they need to feel like they can trust the team. They need to know that the team trusts them, and they need to know that they have the same opportunities as the guy on the other side of the garage. In any team environment, we want to feel trusted. We want to feel valued. We want to feel like we're not being in any way disadvantaged compared to those people around us. And the opportunities that we have are the same as those around us. Then it might be up to us to take advantage of those opportunities. But from a leadership team, you want to know that once they have established their procedures and their protocols, they can then communicate those clearly so that everybody knows where they stand and they know where everyone else stands around them too. If you're in a competitive environment, naturally, you will get people trying to clamber their way to the top. And a team has the responsibility to make sure that's not at the detriment of the people around them, because that hampers the entire team's progress. Team members will find their way to the top. They will raise their game by working together. We as individuals need to appreciate that. We need to know that. We need to know that we will be stronger with the support of people around us. Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton lost the respect and trust of quite a few people within their own team, within the McLaren team that year, because of the way that they behaved, because of the way they clambered over people around them to try and get themselves up to a higher level. They did themselves no favours in the end because the bigger team environment suffered because of their individual behaviour. But at the very heart of all that, right in the beginning, was the team's communication, the team's behaviour that set that destructive path in motion. Now I have four children, many of you know that. Two of them are twins, so the same age, highly competitive at times as all parents I'm sure will be able to relate to. Children often feel like they need to compete for their parents' attention, for their teachers' attention, for the best results, the best grades at school, for the best achievements. They need to do things better, faster, bigger than their siblings because they think it's going to put them on a pedestal when it comes to the appreciation of the authoritative figures in their life twins perhaps even more so than many others because they're the same age it happened just today in my own house where my son felt like he was being picked on or there was preferential treatment being given to his sister because of a series of things that had happened that had gone against him a a series of incidents where he felt he'd been told off perhaps unfairly whereas his sister hadn't And of course, that wasn't the case. Of course, it was just because he'd done a number of things wrong, whereas his sister hadn't on this particular occasion. So it felt like he was under immense pressure and watching his sister sail through the day without getting into trouble. We've all been there. We all know exactly how this goes and how it feels. And actually, it's not much different to the scenario that I've just described to you in those days at mclaren the type of competition may well be completely different but no less real to those people involved my kids feel like there's a level of competition siblings tend to feel like that as they grow up as they constantly change particularly twins changing at different times in their life excelling in certain areas where the person who is in the same household as you going through the same things getting their grades at the same time learning the same things at school one of them might grasp the mathematics problems that they're learning that day so much easier than the other one and yet the other one might excel in english for example. Two completely different people, yet often compared to each other because they're going through many of the same things at the same times. But like two completely random people from different households they are simply different and they have different strengths and different weaknesses. But because they're living in the same space, because they're seeing those results that the other one's getting right before their eyes every single day. And of course, they're comparing themselves to them internally, as well as expecting that others will be comparing them from the outside. At the same time, they start to take notice. They start to behave in certain ways that they feel might start to offset what they see as their weaknesses compared to their sibling or enhance the advantages that they see they might have over their siblings it's all about getting one up against the competition it's a natural human phenomenon but in exactly the same way that i saw things unfold at mclaren that i learned the hard way by seeing those things and being part of those things unfolding at mclaren communication can go an awful long way to smoothing that path to making it less destructive. And perhaps there's an argument to say that the fact that my son threw those things back at me, through this perception of unfair treatment as he saw it, perhaps you could argue that because of that, my communication to him in the past maybe hasn't been good enough. Maybe that's the reason that these thoughts are creeping into his head. Perhaps, as many kids often do, it's just a way of deflecting some of that negative attention that he's been getting right now in another way, deflecting it back at me. It's someone else's fault. But either way, I knew that when this happened today, communication was my way to overcome it. So I waited for him to calm down, to regain control, to get himself back into a state where I felt like I could then sit down and talk to him. And that's exactly what I did. I sat down and I talked him through the entire process, talked about every single one of those incidents, explaining what happened and why it happened, why there was no preferential treatment towards his sister and why on that particular occasion she didn't get told off, but he did. How in the future he could turn that around and by not doing these particular things, he wouldn't get that negative attention and to make sure that he knew that if his sister did some of those exact same things that he had done, she would have received the exact same response. Communication by talking it through in a real calm, clear and concise way, in a way that he can get his head around, in a way that he can understand, I hope will prevent him feeling the way that he said he was feeling earlier today and moving into the future and maybe just maybe and i don't know he's 11 years old who knows how deeply this is going to sink in at this point but maybe it will prevent him thinking down those lines when it comes to incidents like this happening in the future so i guess the message coming out of this part of today's podcast is really about are we saying the right things to the people around us that matter. If we're running a team, if we're part of a team, and that team could be anything from a family unit. You could be a parent talking to your children, a sibling talking to a brother or sister, part of a friend group, talking to people in your community. Are you saying what you need to say? Are you saying, are you getting the right messages across? If you're embarking on a project at work, are you setting out your expectations in the right way? that doesn't leave too much room for ambiguity, for misunderstanding? What kind of problems could you envisage happening further down the line? And can your communications today potentially iron those out, potentially shut them down before they happen? It might be what you don't say as much as what you do. Avoiding those difficult, awkward conversations Can actually lead to more problems than the uncomfortableness of having them in the first place. McLaren could have avoided many of their troubles in 2007 by not leaving out the elements of the conversation that were being assumed by various parties. And we should think along those same lines. Have you got people in your community, in your family or friend group, colleagues at work, who do things that either hamper you, cost you time, cost you money, or simply just annoy you. If they do that every day, that annoyance can become quite severe. The extra work they cause you by a little habit that they have that they may not know about could have a compounding effect on you over time. So mention it, talk about it, have that conversation now. It doesn't have to be done in a rude or abrupt way. It doesn't have to be done as a big emotional reaction. In the same way that I waited with my son today to talk to him later once things had calmed down, I felt like we had a much more constructive conversation, because I know that he would not have been able to accept those things in the moment when he was annoyed and frustrated at himself. So perhaps you can think about similar ways of approaching those difficult conversations. Find the right moments, but also find the right words to say to the person you're going to say them to. The way you communicate to one person may not be the best way to communicate to somebody else. And that's the very thing about communication. We say things all the time, but quite often it's not what we say, but it's how those things are interpreted. And it's easy to throw that back to the person on the other end and say, well, you've heard it wrong. You've taken that the wrong way. You've interpreted it the wrong way. But as communicators, we have a responsibility to make sure that the way that we communicate that is interpreted the way we intended it to be for that person. It's what McLaren got so wrong in 2007. And it led on to one of the biggest, most epic failures in modern Formula One history. Very well publicized. If you don't know the details of that year, go and check it out. It's a fascinating story. In fact, you could do far worse than go and check it out in my own book. (laughs) But look, that was a very public falling out, a very public disaster that stemmed from poor communication. Thinking about the way that our communications will be received, how they'll be interpreted, which questions they might prompt, which kind of responses might be provoked off the back of our communications, how it might make people feel or react. Those are all things that are our responsibility, but also can create us. competitive advantage if we get them right. They can prevent us from having problems further down the line that might hamper our progress. So definitely worth thinking about this week. Okay, before I move on to the second topic that I want to cover in this week's podcast, I should just say it started raining. Uh, Where I'm recording this, uh, there's not a lot I can do, unfortunately. It's raining hard on the windows above me, uh, so you may well hear it in the background. But welcome to summer in the UK, folks. (laughs) Um, Anyway, what I do want to talk about now is the Miami Grand Prix because, of course, it happened last week with a huge amount of glitz and glamour, a huge amount of pomp and ceremony, a massively hyped up event long before the event even happened. And since it happened, it feels to me like there's been an almost equal amount of Praise for it being awesome as there has been criticism for it being way over the top and not F1 at all. And I thought I'd look a a little bit deeper into it or take a few moments to think a little bit more about that. And I've been thinking actually all week about this because the Miami Grand Prix unquestionably was hugely hyped. One of the most hyped events I think we've had in this sport for a long, long time. It was packed full of celebrities all across the grid, one of the busiest grids I have ever seen in my life. The TV broadcast had a different feel to it. The social media presence around this event was enormous. There were influencers from right across the globe there. There were influencers from right across the States there, sports stars, movie stars, TV stars that perhaps here in Europe we are not quite as familiar with, but in the States, household names. Names that have millions and millions of social media followers tagging along with them. And of course, word spread. That got the word out about this event. It hyped it up. It bigged it up. It got it to an enormous number of people that perhaps most Formula One events just simply don't get into the hearts and minds of. And that was, of course, the purpose of this. That was exactly why the event was hyped up. It was why these people were brought into Miami For that weekend. And whilst many people loved the celebrity laden glitz and glamour of the event, many others felt that it was over the top, that it was fake, that the event had been overly Americanised in some way, and that it just simply wasn't what Formula One should be. And my question around that is was all this hype around this Grand Prix justified? Was it real? Was it backed up with some substance? Was the way that this Grand Prix was portrayed to the world exactly how F1 wanted to portray this Grand Prix? What I mean by that is, was it over the top? Was it all show and no go? Or is this the face of what Miami wanted their Grand Prix to look like? Is this exactly what a Miami Grand Prix should look like? Now, if we take the racing to one side just for a moment, because personally, I thought the track was okay i thought the race was okay i mean we've all seen worse yeah of course we've all seen better but we've definitely all seen worse and the way that we remember the racing is so often determined by a multitude of factors if there'd been a number of crashes if there'd been more safety cars if there had been some more extreme weather during the grand prix that could have completely shaken up the results we'd be remembering it as one of the greatest grand prix ever i'm sure It didn't happen that way, so we remember it as a fairly average race, but it may not be the same next time out. So let's take that side of it away. I'm more interested in the way that Miami fronted up for this event, to put on this event. This was an opportunity for Miami to get hold of one of the world's biggest sporting events and do their thing to it. And what I'm interested really is in how they chose to do that. What front or what face they decided to put on this event. Formula One is a historical sport, great history in the sport, going back a long time, a lot of tradition. My worry or my wonder around this, around the fans who criticised this event, who said it wasn't Formula One enough. And believe me, my timelines, my inboxes, my DMs are full of people shouting and screaming that this should just never have happened. This was not a Formula One event. It's not what Formula One should look like. I raise an eyebrow around that and I ask myself, well, is that really the case or is that the case of people looking at a new event without the vision of what that new event could look like or bring to the sport and only looking at it through the blinkered eyes of what's gone before, the way they see a Formula One event happening, their perception of what Formula One should look like, they're trying to push that onto every future event that comes into this sport. My personal view is that if we're going to start expanding the calendar into new areas, new territories all around the world, different markets, of which the states clearly is a massively untapped one, and although we're going to eventually have three different races in the USA, they are going to be three very different races in very different parts of the states, geographically thousands of miles apart, different cultures in each of those, should those events not be free to express those cultures? Should every event around the world not have its own unique character that is specific to that place, to the people in that place, to the culture of the city that it's in? Surely we don't want 23 or 24 races that are all the same. And the racing is a completely different story because track design is something that will evolve over time. The cars are constantly evolving over time as well, meaning that some of the circuits that we've had traditionally in this sport no longer suit the current cars. So there's a whole other conversation to be had about what we do to make the racing a spectacle. And of course, the sporting event, the racing itself should always be at the heart of any Grand Prix that comes onto the calendar. That's its very purpose. That's the very reason the thing is happening in the first place. But around that, why not create a spectacular event that embraces the location in which it's being held? And I personally thought that Miami did a really good job of that. And it raises two questions for me outside of the confines of Formula One. One is around style over substance, all show, no go, or around image portrayal. Are we projecting an image of ourselves on the exterior that is true to the interior values and core beliefs that we hold? Our inner self, does that actually look like our outer self? Or are we projecting an image of something or somebody that we think other people expect of us or that we think other people would rather like to see of us than the one that we actually believe is our true self? That's the first thing. Did Miami do that? Or did the Miami Grand Prix project a version of Miami that it wants to show the world because that is what Miami is all about? Was the personality and the character around that event true to the personality and character of Miami? Was it exactly what they wanted the rest of the world to look on and see when they saw Miami? I believe it is. I mean, I've been to Miami. I'm telling you, that's what you get when you go there. It seemed so Miami to me. The question is, was it so F1? And that then raises the second part of this question, because who decides what F1 should look like? Who decides what an F1 event should look like? Is it me here from the UK comparing it to what the British Grand Prix looks like? Because that was very different. Is it somebody in France comparing it to their French Grand Prix? Is it the Australians looking at the Melbourne race and saying, this is what a Formula One event should look like? People at Spa, one of the most traditional events on the calendar. Is that what a Formula One Grand Prix should appear like? And my answer to all of that is none of those things are true. The Belgium Grand Prix should look like the one we have in Spa. The British Grand Prix should look like the one we have at Silverstone. Because it's the British Grand Prix, and the British Grand Prix has evolved into the event that it is today, and it's epic. It's very British. It's normally pouring down with rain, with people camped under umbrellas on grassy banks and grandstands around this historic and brilliant racetrack. It has passion in those fans, it has knowledge in those fans. They get out in all weathers to support their people. Miami, you could not say, was that. It probably wasn't anywhere near as knowledgeable a crowd. It probably wasn't anywhere near as passionate a crowd. But they were a crowd that were intrigued. They were invested in checking out this new event as it was to them. They came to see the glitz and glamour. They came to experience a bit of Miami, both inside the confines of that circuit, as well as outside around the rest of that city. They came for a little bit of Miami. They came to experience a bit of that celebrity lifestyle, to get a glimpse of some of those celebrities that might be around the event. They came for sunshine, they came for beaches, they came to party. And that is exactly what Miami wants the world to see of their city. Because once the Grand Prix has long gone, they still want people to come to that city for all of those same reasons. The event was true to Miami. You don't have to like it or even to want to go. But lots of people did. And surely we should all be open to other people being proud of themselves, of their cities, of their events, even though they might be completely different to the things that make us proud. And isn't that an even bigger lesson for us all? That different people around this planet are different. They hold different values important to them. Their cities and their countries have different things to offer. And we should allow them to be proud of those things and to show them off, to exploit the resources that they have available to them, to utilize their strengths and weaknesses to put on an event that's true to them. No matter how traditional a Formula One fan that you are, how ingrained you are in the history of this sport, there was a time when this world championship had had only one event, the British Grand Prix. At that point, there was only one. And then we went somewhere else and we saw a slightly different take on what a Grand Prix should be. And then we went to the next event and somebody else again did it slightly differently. The variations may have been minimal back then, not to the extreme differences we might be seeing in different parts of the world today. But isn't that variety what makes for a really interesting and varied championship? And isn't that same variety what makes for a wonderful, diverse human race? When we jump onto social media platforms, we get involved in Twitter and we want to push our opinions on other people. We want to criticise the opinions of others because they might be different to ourselves. We want to surround ourselves with other people in our network, on our social platforms who share the same opinion. They call it an echo chamber. When you have an opinion and all you want to hear back is people in agreement, people repeating that same opinion back to you. It's not healthy. It's not rich and varied. It doesn't give us diversity of thoughts. It doesn't allow us to question ourselves or to question our own opinions, to question the validity of our opinions. It doesn't give us any alternative opinions to measure those by. History's peppered with disagreements, even wars, because people couldn't bear to share a world which included differing opinions around a topic. One person or one party always seems to feel like they have to be the one that's right, and if they're right then somebody else has to be wrong. And to some extent, this was the sentiment that I took from much of the furore around the Miami Grand Prix. The conversation that's happened since that event took place just a week ago has been pretty vociferous, has been quite angry in places. My DMs have been full of people criticising to quite an extreme level, in some cases, the way the event played out and the way that Formula One is embracing a future not just in America, but in other parts of the world too, which might look different to this core historic traditional base in Europe that Formula One emerged from back in the day. But isn't it that diversification that's going to enrich the sport? Isn't it that variety that we're going to see as the calendar inevitably expands into different territories around the globe? That diversification and uniqueness of each event. Bringing the character of a country or city to life, together with the people around that country or city. The differing opinions of what a Grand Prix should look like. Isn't that just spicing the whole thing up? Giving us the variety that should enable us to remain interested all the way through an extended season. I want to see racetracks that change. I want to see race formats that evolve over time. Tire choices to be varied, to mix up the challenge that the teams face every week. So that if we have one team that excels in one particular place with one particular set of tires around a certain racetrack in a certain part of the world at a certain time of year... That's fine because the next weekend we might go to a completely different climate, a completely different type of racetrack with different tyres and a whole new set of engineering and technical as well as driving challenges around that. And I want to see how everybody adapts to it. I want to see how everybody within this sport embraces it. And it should be exactly the same for the way the race is promoted, presented how it's embraced by fans, because isn't it exactly the same in the wider world? I want to see a variety of diverse people all around this world that I can bounce my opinions off, that I can try and understand those opinions of others. I love getting into debates with people who disagree with me, not to get into a fight, not to get into an argument, but to put my opinions forward and try and communicate those in the clearest way possible. Try to help somebody else understand why I feel about something the way I do. But in just the same way, I want to try and understand how somebody else can have a completely different opinion. And if somebody who's a massive fan of the traditional circuits, the Spars, the Silverstones, the Suzukas of this world, classic tracks that have so much history so much story attached to them that we love as Formula One fans if those people can't find a way to at least be open to the sport evolving to new parts of the world to new types of racetrack in the future if they can't find a way to try and understand what it is places like Miami are trying to portray with this event what it is about Miami they're trying to show off You don't have to like it. You don't have to want to get on a plane and go on holiday there. But if you can try and understand it, it opens up your cultural variation just a little bit. But even if you never find a way to love what Miami brings to the pomp and the ceremony, the glitz and the glamour, the celebrity, the overhyped nature of an event like that, even if none of that floats your boat strip it all away and right at the heart is a Grand Prix race. The same cars that race on your circuit around Spa, the same drivers behind the wheel. It's a different type of racetrack, absolutely, but that brings with it a different type of challenge that these great teams and drivers have to try and overcome. And at the heart of all of that is a sporting contest that we all love the people from Spa love it, the people from Silverstone love it, and I'm pretty sure that now the people from Miami love it too. Diversity of opinions and thought processes, of ways of life, religion, politics, whatever, dress sense, whatever it might be, they are the things that make the world more colourful we will never all agree on some of these differences of opinion, and nor should we, in fact. In fact, many of the world's biggest disagreements in history have stemmed from a lack of understanding from people, people not appreciating how somebody else could think differently. And actually, even more than that, not just that they can't understand their difference of opinion, but they don't have any understanding of how they could possibly come to that conclusion, why they might think differently, what influences they have that might be different to ours that may have helped form those opinions. Because if somebody from a different place or walk of life could be equally as passionate as you, but with an opposing view to yours, well, where did their passion come from? If you passionately believe that your opinion is the right one and therefore everyone else's opinion must be wrong... Where does their passion come from? What is it that's made them feel so passionate that their opinion might be the one that they believe in? They might well have just as much justification as you, even though you might not be able to see it from your perspective, because your influences, your experience, your background, the people and the places that you're surrounded with might have all led you down a completely different path. The culture you exist in, the environment you grew up in, the influential people that were around you at that time have all helped to form your opinions. And it's exactly the same for somebody on the other side of the planet, even though they may have a completely different set of influences in their background to the ones that you have. The world is constantly changing. It's always been changing right through its history, and it's going to continue to evolve all the way into its future. And the custodians of this world will, of course, evolve with it. They will have new ideas. They'll face new challenges. They'll think up new ways to entertain themselves that might be completely different to the ones that we are familiar with today. But that's no different to the things that we do today being different to what went before. Formula One itself being a great example. Modern F1 would be unfathomable to the people that queued up and filed into huge arenas to watch horse-drawn chariots racing around back in the day. But it's no less valuable because back then that type of sport, that type of entertainment would have brought huge value and entertainment to those people. The people who watched Formula One 50 years ago would have taken enormous value from it. They would have found it extraordinarily advanced. They would have absolutely loved what they saw. They wouldn't even be able to comprehend what we experience as Formula One today. And the same will happen 50 years from now. Events like the Miami Grand Prix for me were exciting. They got me excited about the future of Formula One long after I'm even here to witness it. Who knows where a technologically advanced sport like this could end up going? Miami was one little glimpse into the next evolution of this sport and I can't wait to see what comes next. Not because I'm bored of the existing traditional circuits and events that we've all become used to but because I'm excited for what the future might hold. I have no idea where it might go next, but that's exciting in itself. I'm excited to see how other people interpret the putting on of this huge global event that is a Formula One Grand Prix. And when we go to Las Vegas, I can't wait to see what they do. When we go to the next evolution of venue, when we go to the next territory that's never hosted a Grand Prix before, I can't wait to see what they do to it, how they bring a little bit of their own character and culture into the sport that we all love. And that's it. We all love it. That's what's at the heart of this is Formula One racing. Even that may well have changed and evolved. And if you only love what came 40, 50, 30 years ago, you are going to get left behind. The sport's going to move on, whether the fan base and the traditionalists want to move on with it or not it's life. Life moves on, so let's embrace it. Let's not try and force our opinions on others without trying to understand how on earth they may have come to their conclusion and their opinions themselves. Let's not tell people what a Formula One event should look like, but let's open it up, let's give them an event, and let's see what they make of it. A little bit more understanding, a little bit more appreciation, a little bit more diversity of thinking I think would go a long way, not just in the world of Formula One, but in the world in general. And I, for one, will try and embrace that a little bit more over the next week. And I would encourage you to do the same. Uh, I'm going to wrap things up here. But just before I go, I just want to, as I did last week, read out a review that somebody has kindly left me in the apple podcast store because i think this is a really nice one and hopefully embraces why we all have engaged in this podcast it comes from somebody called matilda2005 and it says this mark is my go to source for all things performance self improvement team communications etc he's been a vital source of valuable and viable information that i use weekly when talking to my team This podcast isn't just about F1, this is about life itself and how the processes and procedures used in a billion dollar industry can be directly linked to ourselves, how we perform, how we communicate, and above all else, how we can be better people. Great content, brilliantly delivered, I've subscribed. So Matilda 2005, uh, thank you so much for that wonderful review. He's popped that in alongside a five-star rating in the Apple Podcast Store. And I am so, so grateful to you. That's very, very kind. Uh, Also really sums up what I'm trying to achieve with this podcast. So if that's what you're taking from it, that makes me very, very happy. If you've taken anything like that, anything at all, in fact, from this podcast, either good or bad. I definitely want to know where we can improve on this. So don't feel, I mean, that's exactly what I've just been saying here, isn't it? I want to know your opinions, good or bad, whether you agree or disagree with the things I'm saying, please do drop me a line. Send me a message on social media. I read them all. I respond to as many as I can, hopefully all of them. But I'd love it that if you've enjoyed the podcast, Please do leave me a five star rating wherever it is you're listening. If you get the option to leave a review, like in the Apple Podcast Store, please do that. Just a few words, it's absolutely fine, but it means the world to me. Um, So, listen, thank you so much, everybody, once again, for taking the time to listen. If you're still here after an hour, that's a huge commitment of your time and one that I don't take lightly. So, thank you very, very much. I hope you all have a brilliant, brilliant week, whatever it is you're up to. And as ever, As you go through your week, just try and remember this. Try and embrace this a little bit more this week than last week. Do the right things and do the things right. Ta-da.